Well, this is a special weekend, uh, not only because in it we celebrate the liberation of our nation, you could say, the freedom of independence in America, uh, but growing up, uh, so my birthday is, is July 1st, my aunt's birthday is July 2nd, my father's birthday is July 3rd, and then our nation's birthday is, is the 4th, and so growing up we would go to upstate New York this weekend and kind of celebrate everyone's birthday and the 4th of July and just have a big old party as Bissells. So this is a really special weekend, and I don't want to keep you long this morning because I want you to honor that uh, and go party yourselves in whatever way you see fit, today, tomorrow, whatever. Now over the past week and a half or so, Christians across the country, this country, have been criticized for their supposed association with the recent Supreme Court ruling. Now, I I say the word supposed because not all Christians actually agree with the ruling. They don't. In other words, there are actually some Christians, individuals, but also whole churches who sincerely love Jesus, who read their Bibles, fervently, and who would identify as pro-choice politically. I'm good friends with many such people, so they do exist, okay? Now, despite such diversity of opinion, though, within the church, Christians have been popularly associated with the pro-life position. And so after the Dobbs decision was released on the 24th, Christians became the target of mass criticism. Now, I'm not here this morning to argue for either political position, though I do want to encourage dialogue amongst Christians, especially even bipartisan dialogue among Christians here and elsewhere. I think that is crucial to our mission. And so there's more I could say about that, but I won't do that this morning. What I'm here to talk about is an experience that all Christians face, It's not only in this country, it's not only conservative Christians, not only liberal Christians, not only last week. It's how do we respond when sharply criticized by others? When our beliefs, our lifestyle, our shortcomings become the target of serious rebuke. It's not if, but when... When this happens, how ought Christians to respond? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul can actually help us with this. And so in Acts chapter 26, we're in a series in the book of Acts, if you haven't been with us. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is again before a civil ruler. Now, he's actually before two such rulers, the Roman governor, Porcius Festus, and the king, the Jewish king of some surrounding regions, Agrippa II. Now, after speaking about his life, his ministry, his teaching, throughout the beginning of chapter 26, Paul is criticized on two occasions by two separate rulers. Festus, on the one hand, calls him crazy. He says, you're mad, delirious, raving. And Agrippa basically calls him naive. Do you really expect to make me a Christian so quickly? 
So Paul has just laid his heart out before these two rulers, and they each criticize him in a kind of barbed, sharp way. And how does Paul respond to such criticism? Does Paul become immediately defensive? Does he erupt with anger of his own? Does he come back with insults, starting a kind of unproductive back-and-forth debate? Does he do that? In our passage, the end of Acts 26, Paul responds to critique in a truly, truly remarkable way. He responds with respect, with composure, and with care, heartfelt care for his listeners. Now, as Mike mentioned, at this point in our nation's history, with political polarization increasing, chances for self-expression on the internet increasing, we're in desperate, desperate need of Paul's example. We've forgotten how to talk to each other. I'd say even more importantly, we've forgotten how to Listen, how to listen. So my purpose this morning is to help us listen, to teach us how to respond to critique in a way that's reflective of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what I'm here to do. And like I said, I'll try to do that in time so you can get your fill of lobster or whatever you're going to eat. So in just a moment, I'm going to set up the context of our passage as I normally do. I'll read it. We'll read it in the ESV. And then I'll walk through it verse by verse with some of those things in mind. But before we jump in, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we need you. Oh, do we need you. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to be sensitive to what it is that you have for us in your word, Lord. Sensitize us to your movements. Please allow us to join you in the amazing, miraculous movement that you're engaged in, in this area, in this place. Be with us, Lord, as we gather to worship you, and I pray for insight and clarity and truth this morning. We love you and praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I had the privilege of preaching last week, and I preached from uh, Acts chapter 25, really just the first 12 verses. Um, And there, if if you were here and recall, Paul was in Caesarea being tried before the Roman governor Festus, the kind of political ruler of the area. And the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem come up, and they throw, cast all these accusations against Paul, and Paul detects that he's... He's dealing with an incompetent tribunal in that case. And so he appeals to a justice that is higher. And that's where we see his appeal to Caesar, Caesar Nero at this point. Now, after that passage, we still had some terrain in 25. And so Festus, he's kind of at a loss because when you send someone to the ruler, you you usually write on their behalf and tell the ruler about their situation. And so Agrippa... Agrippa is a member of the Herodian family. We think of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa. This is Agrippa 
the second, uh, and actually his sister, Drusilla, had married the previous Roman governor, Felix. And so these families are very much connected, okay? And so Agrippa is in the area, and Festus asks Agrippa, you know, what, what do I do with this guy? Agrippa's Jewish, he knows the Jewish scriptures, and maybe he'll have some insight into Paul's case. And so Agrippa is there with his sister, Bernice, and ultimately they want to talk to Paul. They want to see the guy face to face, and so that's what happens. And that brings us to the end of chapter 25. And then chapter 26 happens, and that's really where Paul defends himself before Agrippa. A lot of these latter chapters and acts feature Paul's defense before various rulers. And so most of 26 is his defense before Agrippa. And so for the first, like, 23 verses, Paul talks about his, his upbringing, his conversion, his ministry, his teaching, all that stuff. And then something happens in verse 24. And that's where our passage can be found. So if you haven't already, friends, would you turn with me to Acts 26, starting at verse 24. Um, This can be found on page 935 of some of the Pew Bibles. I've been told that not all of them match, but most of them, it's 935, but if not, look for Acts 26, starting at verse 24. And I will be reading from the ESV. All right. It says, as he, Paul, was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, that's Agrippa, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner." King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So that's, that's it. Six verses in English and Greek, kind of short compared to our other texts. And what I'd like to do as we study this is break it up into two sections. And they happen to be both three verses, which is great. The first three verses concern Paul and Festus. Festus kind of interrupts Paul's defense And Paul has a chance to respond. So that is the first three verses. The latter half of the the passage has to do with Paul and Agrippa. So Agrippa doesn't interrupt as Festus did, but he does have some choice words for Paul. And Paul, again, has a chance to respond. Second section is Paul and Agrippa. And so what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is really just walk through this short passage especially noting those two sections and thinking about how Paul responds. And so that's what I'd like to do before offering some closing remarks. So let's jump in then at verse 24 of Acts 26. It says that as Paul 
was defending himself. This is the Greek word apologia, so where we get the word apologetics in English. Paul was doing apologetics. He was in the midst of it. It's in the present tense, which means that Paul was in, in process. He was in the middle of his speech. He was still going. And then Festus, whom Paul is not actually there to address primarily, he's there to address Agrippa, it says, as Paul was defending himself, Festus, this other guy in the room, says with a loud voice, dot, dot, dot. So Luke, the author of Acts, gives us every indication that what's happening here is an interruption, okay? I think we can agree on that. Paul was in the midst of pouring out his heart, defending his ministry, his values, to Agrippa, and this Roman governor, Festus, whose court it is, we're in Caesarea, he bursts forth with this interjection, with an interruption. And what does he say? He says, Paul, you're crazy. You're crazy. This is the word mania, where we get the word manic, maniacal, mania. He's, he's literally saying, Paul, you are beside yourself. You're raving. You're delirious. Now, some of you may know Aristotle and Plato and the Stoics, Greek philosophers. Aristotle had this book called the Nicomachean Ethics, and so he had all these virtues. You know, we think of the four cardinal virtues in Greek philosophy. You may have, may have heard about that. So normally there'd be like two extremes, uh, two negatives, and then the virtue would be in the middle. So in, in Greek thought, mania was one of those extremes. It was, it was a state in which you were so overwhelmed with emotion that it clouded your mental faculties. That you were, you were just beside yourself with feeling such that you couldn't think straight. That is what Festus is accusing Paul of. Now, mind you, Festus is the one who is so full of emotion that he interrupts Paul's speech. Keep that in mind. But he's accusing Paul not of being, not of having psychosis or some kind of cognitive disorder, but in the moment being just filled with emotion beside himself. He goes on to say that your many letters or your advanced education, your research is driving you into madness. Again, that word mania. He's, he's seeing Paul engaging the Hebrew scriptures in light of Jesus obsessively engaging these texts, writing these letters, preaching these messages. And Festus, a Gentile, not aware of the details of these scriptures, thinks that Paul is so nose-deep in these books that he has just gone off the deep end. Imagine with me if you were sharing your testimony if you were pouring out your heart to a small group of people, maybe to primarily one or two, you're sharing your values, maybe your fears, just the, the inner longings, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning, talking about Jesus, what he's done in your life, and then somebody else in the room is just fed up with what you're saying, and they interrupt you and call you crazy. How would that make you feel? 
How would you as a human being be tempted to respond to someone like that? And how does Paul respond? Let's look. Verse 25. He says, I am not crazy, most excellent Festus. Most excellent Festus. <laughs> I don't think this is flattery. I don't think this is sarcasm. Paul is before a Roman governor, and he's paying homage. He's showing honor, respect. He's in his court. He doesn't fly off the handle matching Festus's emotion. He says, I'm not crazy. I'm in control. Most excellent Festus. He goes on. He says, words of truth and sensibility, rationality, temperance. Do I speak to you right now? Temperance. This was one of the four cardinal virtues in ancient Greek philosophy. We've got prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. So temperance would be that virtue in between mania, being overcome with emotion, manic, and then maybe like sloth or emotionlessness, on the other hand. In the middle is temperance. You have emotions, they exist within you, but you have them under control. And so what you say is, yes, informed by emotion, but also thought. It's under control, it's sensible, it's rational. For Paul to have said this, to have called his word, his message, tempered, sensible, would have caused all of these lights to go off in Greeks and in even Jews' minds at the time. The very manner in which Paul speaks demonstrates that he is in control of his faculties. He waits for Festus to finish. I'd like to think he speaks in a kind of calm, quiet way. He says, I am not crazy. I speak words of truth and sensibility. Here we see in Paul's response to Festus, that he shows respect, and I would say composure. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't match the emotions, the senselessness of Festus's outburst, but he's under control. He's still emotional, but he's got them under control. Respect and composure. He goes on to say that the king... Agrippa here, the king knows about these things. In other words, he's still talking to Festus, but he says, this king, this Jewish king, knows about the things of which I speak, which are very Jewish things having to do with the Hebrew Bible. He says, he knows about these things, and it's primarily to him that I'm here to speak. And he says, boldly, boldly. So all these details about resurrection and inclusion of Gentiles, this Roman governor might not have known, but a Jewish king, Agrippa, totally would have known. That's what Paul says. He goes on to say, though, that I am not convinced, this is the end of verse 26, I am not convinced in the slightest that any of these things about which I speak have escaped the king's notice. It's not as though they were done in a corner. That's what Paul says. I think this is a compliment of Agrippa. 
He's saying these, these things about which I speak were done within Agrippa's realm. And he, as a good king, is so aware of the happenings in his realm that no way would these things have evaded his perception, his awareness. I think Paul is showing respect, in a way, to Agrippa here. Of course he would know about these things. They happened within his jurisdiction, within the realm over which he presides. This is kind of the bridge, then, to our second section, in which Paul addresses Agrippa directly. So we've got Paul's response to Festus, respectful and composed, and here, in the last three verses, we'll get his dealings with Agrippa. So in verse 27, if you look, Paul looks right at Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? With, I think, sincerity in his heart. This, grammatically in Greek, is expecting a yes answer. That actually it tells you the grammar if it's, you believe in the prophets, don't you? Or, you don't believe in the prophets, don't you? This is a, you believe in the prophets, don't you? And then Paul even answers his own question. I know, I know that you believe. The prophets here stand for all of Jewish scripture. That's at least what most of the commentators say. So Paul is asking this Jewish king, Agrippa, you believe in the Hebrew scriptures, right? And this is a tricky question because Paul's gospel, if you read his speeches, Paul's gospel about Jesus, Messiah, emerges directly from a careful reading of the Hebrew scriptures. And so for Agrippa to say, yes, I believe the prophets, would logically entail, yes, he believes the gospel. Paul can't help but try to convert people. And there's no ulterior motive. He's concerned for people's souls. He's trying to share the gospel with Agrippa. He's trying to bring him into the life he knows in Christ. Remember, he's shared his heart. He's been vulnerable. He's poured it all out on the line. And this is what Agrippa says. Verse 28. He says to Paul, In such little time, or with such measly arguments, with such little effort, do you really expect to make me into a Christian? Of course I'm embellishing, but the way that the text is constructed lends itself to that kind of sarcasm. All of the commentators agree that that this is not a a genuine question. Agrippa has tongue-in-cheek. He's, he's mocking, deriding, reviling Paul's attempt at conversion here. This phrase in, I think the ESV says, in a short time, it's actually really ambiguous. It just says, in a little, in a little in Greek. So I think all the options at our disposal suggest a reading like, in, in, in such a little time, such little arguments with, with so little effort, do you really expect to make me a Christian today? He's mocking Paul's ability to convert him. Now again, step back for a moment. Imagine you were having a conversation with a friend or two, laying it all out on the line. You want them to taste the life you know in Jesus, and so of course you're trying to bring them in. And imagine if the person to whom you're talking comes out with this. 
do you really think you're going to make me a Christian with such lousy arguments? Imagine how you would be tempted to respond to that. Now let's read Paul's response in the last and what I would say is the key verse of this passage, verse 29. Paul says, I pray to God, I wish, I hope. This is one of the rarest Greek verbs in the New Testament. It expresses a a longing for some distant possibility. It's in the optative mood, that's what they call it. Paul's saying, "I, I wish, I hope, I'm longing to God that whether through little arguments or through big ones, in a little time or a long period of time, that not only you, Agrippa, but everyone who hears me today, Festus included, that everyone who hears me today would become such as I am, would experience the life I know in Christ. But accept, accept for all these chains. Paul shows his heart to us. Paul is utterly motivated by care. Care for the welfare of his listeners. He just wants them to know true life, abundant life. The life he knows in Jesus. He wants them to be such as he is, except without all the suffering he's experiencing. To critique, Paul has responded with respect and composure. And here I would add, care, heartfelt care. I think we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul. We are in situations constantly where we are criticized for right reasons or not. But whether the reasons are right or not, how we respond is still vital. And Paul here responds again with respect, with composure, and with heartfelt care for the hearts of his listeners. Since the ruling of last Friday, I've seen so many arguments between liberal Christians and conservative Christians, between Christians and non-Christians, mostly on social media. I've seen so many arguments, guys, that a, a literal pit, a pit formed in my stomach. It's just starting to go away. A pit formed in my stomach when I saw the way Christians were responding, not only to each other, but to those who are not Christians too. This is immortalized in public on news feeds and threads for all to see. How does Paul respond here in Acts 26? As his fundamental beliefs, teachings, values, efforts are being mocked, derided, reviled, does he respond with defensive anger? ad hominem insults at the person of his critics? Does Paul respond without interest in the emotional state of his critics? Respect, composure, 
care. That's how Paul responds. And in such a response, and in only such a response, we don't see Paul. We see Jesus. We see Jesus. Friends, how we respond to criticism will make or break our witness to the gospel. It will. It just will. As I think back to a comment thread that I saw, Danielle and I saw it on Facebook. This is a thread that includes former peers, floor mates, even professors at a certain Bible college. Guys, if I wasn't a Christian and I saw that thread, I would want absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. And those posts don't go away. How we respond to criticism is vital to our gospel mission. And hear me, you don't have to throw away truth to be respectful, composed, and caring. You don't. Paul didn't. He didn't. So as as I close our time this morning, I by no means want to close this conversation. I think that we as Christians especially, we need to talk. I am so grateful, let me say it, that none of these conversations, I've seen none of them among you all, okay? So I am so grateful for that, but I see it in my other circles, I do, and I want to warn us against it. We as Christians, in this volatile moment, we need to talk to each other and to others, but more importantly, we need to listen. We need to listen, especially to those whose opinions differ from our own. In the trying days ahead, then, let me close with this. I urge you, Christians of Freeport, Maine, respond to your critics. Yes, yes. But respond in such a way that they see not you, not you, but Jesus and only Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Oh, do we need you. Give us your heart, Father. Help us to exude love, the love of Christ. To draw people into our movement, our midst, because of Jesus and only Jesus. We need you, Lord, and we pray that you would be with us in a visceral way as we partake of the Lord's Supper together this morning. Be with us now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.